So let's uh, begin reading Psalm 17, verse 1. And the Word of God says, Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence. Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress concerning the works of men. By the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Hold up my goings and thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, hear my speech. Show thy marvelous kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them that put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about, they are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth, like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I'd like to bring your attention this evening to the last verse. He says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. And notice the next four words. I shall be satisfied. I would have preached on those four words. I shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. We thank you for this psalm and many of the psalms that we've enjoyed that enable us to reflect upon our own lives, that uh, help us to question how we are doing spiritually, how we may ask the right questions. And so, Lord, I pray that you would instruct us by your word, and Lord, help us to learn how we may be satisfied, as this psalmist expresses in this last verse. So give us understanding in your word, and by the guidance of your Holy Spirit, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at the psalm, I try to, when I come to each psalm, to try to divide and to seek out any structure in uh, the particular psalm. And what we find here is that uh, we may break it down into a three section, I think. And by the way, different people may break it down differently. So I do not claim that the way I break it down is the right way. Uh, every preacher or Bible student may come out with something different. But the structure is just to help us to see as we progress through this psalm to try to get the main idea that this psalm is communicating. 
and I believe that one of the main ideas that this psalm is communicating is how we can find satisfaction. Uh, where can we be satisfied, or in what, or in whom can we be satisfied, and how do we arrive at that place, and what prevents us from arriving at that place. I think we all know today that uh, there are many people who live discontented lives. I came across an illustration some time ago. There appeared in a newspaper a cartoon showing two fields divided by a fence. Both fields were about the same size and each had plenty of the same kind of grass, green and lush. In each field there was a mule and each mule had his head through the fence eating the grass from the other mule's pasture. All around each mule in his own field was plenty of grass, yet the grass in the other field seemed greener or fresher, although it was harder to get. And in the process, the mules were caught in the wires and were unable to extricate themselves. The cartoonist put just one word at the bottom of the picture. Discontent. Discontent. We think about the idea of being satisfied, and if you would study that word in the, New Testament, in the Old Testament, you would find that this word is used the first time in reference, in Exodus chapter 16, twice, it is used in reference to the manna. And God refers back to the manna, that when God gave the manna, it was not so that the children of Israel might get by with. It was that they might eat bread, the Bible says, to the full. That they might be Filled. And so the manna was not given to them uh, just so that they could survive till the next meal. Uh, it would completely leave them satisfied. And that's the idea that we find the first time that the idea of being satisfied is used in the Old Testament. They would not hunger when their food was finally consumed. You find the idea of being satisfied, uh, being filled, being full of days. You find that in, for example, in 1 Chronicles chapter 23 and chapter 24, and the Bible speaks of men who were of full age. And the idea there is the same, that they uh, arrived at a place where they reached a satisfied life in the sense that they lived a long life. You also find the idea in the book of Revelation maybe in the negative or in the opposite sense where he talks about the church of the Laodicean that said, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. And the idea there is the same that the idea of being satisfied is this, I have need of nothing. Now in the case of the church of the Laodiceans, they were satisfied with the wrong thing. And so they said, I have need of nothing. But I hope that we understand that when we get satisfied in the way that this psalm says that we are satisfied, we will find ourselves in need of nothing. That's what it means to be satisfied. As we look at this psalm, I'm going to move through this psalm rather quickly, and then we're going to focus on what I believe to be the theme of this psalm in the very last verse. I'm going to move through this psalm quickly, so I will speak quickly, you listen quickly, and we'll arrive at the last verse. But uh, as we see here, this is a prayer. When you, if you have a title underneath the psalm, some Bibles do, some Bibles don't, but it, it might say in your Bible, a prayer of David. 
And, and certainly this is a prayer of David. He begins by saying, Hear the right, O Lord. He is speaking directly to God in this particular psalm. Uh, we think about the psalm as being the, the song book of the children of Israel. Uh, but many of those psalm, uh, psalms, although they were sung, are intended to be prayers. And by the way, it's okay to sing a prayer, uh, as they would do at the time. And so here this is David praying. And I want you to notice as he prays, how he progresses through this prayer. And the book of Psalms, by the way, if we want to know how we should pray, the book of Psalms is a good source of structure to know how we ought to pray. The first thing we see is that he is reminded in his prayer, he is reminded of who the Lord is. And in this psalm, I see two categories of how in this prayer, the psalmist gives two categories of what the Lord means to him. What does the Lord mean to him? And who is the Lord to the psalmist? The first thing is that he looks to the Lord in the first four verses as his judge. Now, this is interesting. Notice he begins, Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry, give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Now he is praying here, and he is saying in this prayer, when he says the first three words, hear the right, uh, that is a judicial term. In other words, he says, Lord, hear my case. And the only reason he is saying that is because he has the understanding that God is his judge. In verse 2, he says, let my sentence come uh, forth from thy presence. The idea of sentence is a judge passes a sentence. It could be that you are guilty or you are justified. But the idea of a sentence, it could be negative or positive, but he wants the Lord to be his judge. And so the first idea, uh, as even in verse 3 and verse 4, he talks about his heart, God knowing his heart. And so he sees God, he looks at God as his judge. And I want you to notice there are four things that he says in his prayer about God as his judge. The first thing in verse 1 is that he is a compassionate judge. Do you notice in verse 1 he says, Hear the right, O Lord, attend unto my cry, give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Now the only reason he comes to God and prays to God is because he knows that his judge is a compassionate judge. He knows that God, by the way, although he is asking for God to hear his prayer, he knows full well that God is indeed hearing his prayer. But he is affirming that in his prayer by way of reminding himself that his Lord, who is his judge, is a compassionate judge that hears his case. And isn't it wonderful that whenever our trouble, whatever our trouble is, that God, although He is our judge, He is a compassionate judge. In verse 2, He says, Let my sentence come forth from Thy presence. Let, th let Thine eyes behold the things that are equal. And notice here what He says about His judge. Secondly, He is not only a compassionate judge, but verse 2, He is a commendable judge. He says... Let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Now, by the way here, don't misunderstand. As he is praying, he's not asking that God is unfair most of the time. And in this case, he's asking God to be equal, as if God sometimes was not. In this prayer, he is reminding himself 
that God as his judge is a commendable judge. He is equal. He is not a respecter of persons. That he is, according to Romans chapter 2, the righteous judgment of God. We think about our society today, and judges often may make a mistake, and they may pass along the wrong sentence. But the wonderful thing about God is that he never passes the wrong sentence. He is equal. And here he reminds that God is a commendable judge. He's a compassionate judge. But notice verse 3. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. And here he reminds another thing about God as his judge, that God is a cognizant judge. I believe he's referring to the omniscience of God. That God knows all things. He refers, notice first of all, thou hast proved mine heart. That's where he begins, by the way. He doesn't begin with any act that he has done. He says, God, you know my heart. God is omniscient. It's not just that he sees my actions, but he knows where my heart is and if my heart is in the right place. We also see thou hast visited me in the night. And so God is not just aware of my heart, but also God is aware of the things that may be secret to other men are not secret to God. He knows. He's a cognizant judge. There's another thing he says. Thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. From the very words of the mouth that he speaks, often we think about words that uh, some people speak more than others, but often we fail. The Bible emphasizes that one of the first places that we fail is in our words. And so God is a cognizant judge. He's a commendable judge. He's a compassionate judge. But also notice verse 4. He is a comprehensible judge in this sense. He says, Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Now notice he talks about the path of the destroyer, how he's kept from that. But notice what he attaches that to. He says, by the word of thy lips have I kept me. So in other words, he says that the judge, it's not that David does not know who the judge is, nor what is expected of the judge, nor what the law is. You see, the judge, the Lord as the judge, he is a comprehensible judge. He can be understood. We know his demands. And by the way, the Bible in the broadest sense understands and presents to us the demands of God. The demands of God with regards to us as sinners is justice. Justice is punishment, damnation and hell forever. And God, because he is just, cannot abide sin. Therefore, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sin debt. Why? Because God is a just judge and he judges righteous judgment. But we who understand what Jesus did for us and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Bible says our sins are washed away and we are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not that we stand and we think about God as a judge and we are uncertain about the demands of God. We know exactly what the demands of God are. Righteousness, which we have none of our own. Therefore, we need a Savior. You see, most religions today present a God that is incomprehensible. They have no idea how to attain the standard of the God that they believe in. But that's not so with the God of the Bible. 
The God of the Bible, we know exactly what his demands are. We know exactly how his righteousness can be met in Jesus Christ. And so therefore, this judge is a comprehensible judge, and that's revealed in his word. We don't have to make up any ideas about God. The only ideas that should be in our minds about God are the ideas and the truths that come from his word. So, he is reminded of who the Lord is, and he looks to the Lord first as his judge. What a wonderful way to start a prayer. God, you're my judge. You're a compassionate judge. You're a commendable judge. You are a cognizant judge, and you are a comprehensible judge. But then he turns in his prayer, still reminding himself of who the Lord is, but now he looks not just to the Lord as his judge, but secondly, he looks to the Lord as his Savior. Interesting that he sees those two things as he thinks about the Lord. You're my judge, but also you're my Savior. How do you see him as our Savior? Well, notice with me in our text, verse 5. He says, verse 5, Hold up my goings in thy path, that my footsteps slip not. He sees him as his Savior. He holds me up from slipping. I have, verse 6, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt Hear me, O God, incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Verse 7, Show thy marvelous kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them that put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. In verse 8, Keep me as the apple of the eye, hid, uh, uh, hide me under the shadow of thy wings from the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about. And so here he looks to the Lord as his Savior, and he, in those words, hold me up by my goings. Hear me, show thy marvelous kindness, and save me, and keep me. The same Lord that he sees as his judge is the same one that he sees as the one who can save him. When he says, hold up my goings, Think about it. He's talking here. Hold up my goings in thy path. He already said early on that he has the word of God. God, the judge, can be comprehended, and he has done the best that he's can uh, that he has uh, that he has been able to with the help of the Lord to keep him from the paths of the destroyer. But here he he understands when he says that I slip not. He is concerned about his decisions in life. And he realizes who it is that can help him in his decisions. When he says in verse 6, I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Here, it seems that he is concerned about his spirit. And I say his spirit because um, I've seen this before. Maybe if, my, uh, if I'm busy doing something and... Uh, my children come to me and they want to speak to me. They want to say something. They have something. Maybe they built something or they drew something and they want me to see it. And I've often uh, see their faces when I say, well, I'm too busy right now. Just wait a second. And I see the disappointment on their face and their spirit at that moment being crushed. Why? Because I'm not hearing and listening. Here the psalmist... He wants to bring himself constantly before the Lord. Why? Because he is concerned about his spirit. Hear me. Does God hear him? Yes. But he needs to know that God hears him. And he needs to come before the Lord. He says, Show thy marvelous kindness. Verse 7. Uh, o thou that savest with thy right hand them that put their trust in thee. He is concerned here about his hope. 
You see, he is putting his hope in the Lord in the loving, not just the loving kindness, but the marvelous loving kindness of the Lord that can save him with his right hand, all those who put their trust in him. And so here he is concerned about his hope fading. We'll see the context is clearly the enemies that are about him. And often when we think about those who are around us, we can lose hope. If you look to the world too long, you might lose hope in God. Show me that marvelous kindness. He is concerned about his hope. But also, number four, when he says, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about, it seems that he is concerned about being overcome. And so he sees the Lord as his judge. But then he sees the Lord as his Savior. So he is reminded of who the Lord is in this prayer. By the way, if you go to Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were threatened not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore, they went back to their own company and they prayed. I would encourage you to look at that prayer. The majority of the prayer is just them reminding themselves of who God is. And the request is two verses. The request is always the shortest part. It seems to me that if we in our prayer remind ourselves of who God is, then we will pray better when our requests are made. The Bible does say in Romans chapter 8 that often we pray we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But I believe if we remind ourselves of who God is here, judge and Savior, then it will greatly aid us as we make our request. So he is reminded of who the Lord is, but then he is reminded of who the wicked are. Now, here we look at this psalm and say, well, why would you want to be reminded of who the wicked are? Well, because he points out some things about the wicked. Notice in verse 10, he begins here as he, by the way, he's led into that. He has seen God as his Savior and ultimately that God can preserve him from the wicked, from his enemies that compass him about. Verse 10, he says, They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes bowing down to the earth like as a lion that is greedy of his prey and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. And so he describes here uh, the wicked and who they are and really there are three things. I like to call them men of the world, according to verse 14. Notice what he says. From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure, they are full of children, and they leave the rest of their substance to their babes. Men of the world. How does he describe the men of the world? He's reminded himself of the men of the world. The first thing we see is that the men of the world are men who are proud. They are men who are proud. Notice verse 10. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. That's what men of the world are. They are proud. There's a second thing that describes them. He says in verse 11 and 12, he refers to the idea of a lion. Notice he says, they have now compassed us in our steps. Kind of like a, a lion that comes around a herd. Maybe you have a herd of lions. They surround the herd and typically they're split placed strategically. They have 
the majority of the line will line up on one side and they'll send some lionesses on the other side so when they drive the herd, they will drive them into the lions. And so they compass them. They surround them. He says that they have set their eyes bowing down to the earth like a lion. He says, you remember, if you've ever watched a lion documentary, they crouch down, they go low to the ground as to not be seen. And that's what he's saying is they're, they're just like that. He says like a, as a lion that is greedy of his prey. In other words, that's, that's, uh, that's part of his makeup. That's, that's what the lion does. He, he seeks for his prey. And as it were, a young lion lurking in secret places. So what does he say here? Uh, these men, men of the world, are not just men who are proud, but they are men who are consumed by their appetites, just like a lion consumed by their appetites. In other words, the lion does what the lion will do. And you can't change that. It is natural to him. Do you know what is natural to sinners? Sin. Just like the lion hunts for the prey, the wicked man will sin. But notice he uses the lion because the lion, that's all he lives for, for the next meal. So in the next prey, he is always on the lookout. And if uh, they hunt for the prey, the prey escapes. You know what he thinks next? When's the next prey? When they devour prey and they're successful, the next thing they think about is the prey. And he relates that to men. He, these are the men of the world, men who are consumed by their appetites. But there's a fourth thing that we find, and I believe it's understood here in those verses, that men of the world are men who see their wickedness as permissible. He says, from verse 9, from the wicked that oppress me, from the deadly enemies who compass me about. Notice in verse 12, like a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places, arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. And the question here is, why does... Why do men of the world do what they do? They do what they do. They're given over to their appetites because they are proud. And when a man is proud, that means that he is God, then everything is permissible. If you're proud and you are consumed with your appetites, that you have to fulfill your appetites, that's all that matters then everything is permissible. So he is reminded here of who the Lord is. He is reminded of who the wicked are. But verse 15, we see that he is reminded of what sets him apart. There's a contrast between verse 14 and 15. He says... From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure, they are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. Now, if you pause right there, if you notice some of those things that we find here are actually agreeable to the book of Proverbs, for example, when he says that they have treasures and they are full of children and they leave the rest of their substance to their babes, that means to the children's children, there is a proverb that says that a good man leaves his children's children an inheritance. That's a good thing. But it's not a good thing here. 
not a good thing here. Why? Because that's what they live for. They are proud. They do not leave their children's children an inheritance because that's the principles of God. They leave an inheritance to their children's children because they are proud, because they are consumed with their appetites, and because everything is permissible. And so here, when he even says they are full of children, we know the Bible says that children are heirs of the Lord. They're a blessing. But at that time, uh, children was not just something that was seen as a blessing from God. Uh, kings would have hundreds of children. It was about status in this world. Here is how much offspring he has. He has hundreds of children. It was something that, although God had designed to be a wonderful thing, that the wicked uses to his own advantage. He is full of children. It's interesting that the word that is used here, they are full of children. That word full is the same Hebrew word for the word satisfied in verse 15. That's where they find satisfaction. In the multitude of children, they are find their children, they're filled with children, and that's where they find their status in this world. And so he is reminded in verse 15 of what sets him apart. Notice, we know that is, it is what sets him apart because he says in verse 15, as for me. It's interesting, that's not the only first time we've seen that in the book of Psalms. If you turn back with me to Psalm chapter 5. Just a few pages to your left, Psalm 5. Notice in verse 5, Psalm 5, 5. He said, The foolish shall not stand in thy side. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me... I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy and in thy fear will I worship towards thy holy temple. So he sets forth here a contrast of what sets him apart. What sets him apart here from wicked men. As for me, Psalm 17, 15, but as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. If you are in the habit of writing things down, he is reminded here of what sets him apart. He is praying here. What sets him apart? Here is what sets him apart. Number one, he is willing to be different from men of the world. Just by that expression, as for me, he tells us that he is willing to be different from the men in the world. Men of the world, he said, are those who seek for their substance in this life, whose belly is filled with hid treasures. Now, the hid treasures there is not the spiritual understanding of how we have riches in Christ that are hid and all. He's talking about literal hid treasures, gold and silver that's in the ground, and they dig it up and make themselves rich. They are full of children and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. That's what... They glory in their wealth and their majesty and their power and, and that's what they have. But he says, but as for me, in other words, I, I'm willing to be different from the men of the world. And there is a constant pull in all of our lives. 
to be like men in the world. We uh, see the prosperity of the wicked and we are troubled and we say, well, if only I had the prosperity of the wicked. Prosperity is not evil, it's not wrong. But how we view that which we are prospered by can be wrong. He says, as for me, he is willing to be different from the men in the world. Not only that, but notice he makes a personal and con conscious decision to have a clear vision of the Lord. He says, as for me, here's how I'm going to set myself apart. In other words, we can't say, well, I'm going to be different from the men of the world and then do our own thing. We have to say, as for me, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be willing to be different. Here's what I'm going to do. And so he makes a personal, notice personal, I will, and a conscious decision to have a clear vision of God. He says, I will behold thy face in righteousness. It's a personal decision. It's a conscious decision. And it is to this, to have a clear vision of God. Now, by the way, you remember what the clear vision was? I think his clear vision was set forth in the first nine verses. God is my judge, and he's my savior. That's a pretty clear vision of God. God is a righteous God, but He's full of mercy. He is just, but He is gracious. That's who God is. And He has a clear vision of God, and He says, I, I want more of that. And so I'm going to set myself apart from the men of the world, and I'm going to be willing to be different from the world, even those who oppress me. Uh, because I'd rather be on the oppressed side with God than be the oppressor with the wicked men. And so we all have to make a personal and conscious decision to have a clear vision of God. But then he says, I shall be satisfied. Have you noticed that? Based on the decision to have a clear vision of God, he is now, he has carefully chosen, he has carefully chosen the pursuit of, he knows will satisfy. He has carefully chosen the pursuit he knows will satisfy. Notice, he didn't say, I am satisfied. I'm sure he is. But he says, I shall be satisfied. So you know what he does here? He sets the right pursuit before his eyes and then he follows it. You see, the problem is often you say, well, I want the right pursuit. Well, you have to set it before your eyes. What do you think you will be satisfied with in this world? Now, set it before your eyes. What is it that's going to satisfy you? If you're going to be different than men of the world, be willing to be different and make a personal and conscious decision to have a clear vision of God then you can carefully choose the pursuit that you know will satisfy. There's nothing in this world that will satisfy but God. 
absolutely nothing. I've given this testimony before, but I grew up in a Christian home, and so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the privilege. I count it a privilege. I really do. But I had some rebel years. And in those rebel years, my mentality was, and that was after I was saved, I said to myself, by the way, audibly, I will not serve God. And uh, I began to behave like men of the world. Like men of the world. Looking for satisfaction in this world. And for those years of my life, for about five years of my life, these were the most miserable years of my entire existence. And I would tell you, I did what I wanted to do. And I was miserable. But I was 16 years old. I remember going to a meeting. Preacher was preaching. I think it was Brother John O'Malley. And uh, he was preaching about grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And I realized that I'd grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And I remember coming to the altar. I don't remember who was there. I don't remember exactly what was said in the message, but I remember the Holy Spirit speaking to my heart. And I recognized that I'd grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And that day when I was 16 years old, I said, Lord, I am tired of doing my own will. From now on, I want to do your will. And that moment, everything changed. Oh no, money didn't fly from the sky. Didn't have a car come in my driveway, all those things. But in that very moment, peace and joy filled my life. When I wanted to do what I wanted to do, I was miserable. But when the right pursuit came, then satisfaction came at the very same moment. The very same moment. He has carefully chosen to pursue what he knows will satisfy. There's a fourth thing. He says, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Here it is. And if you don't get anything else from this message, get this. His pursuit, his pursuit is nothing lesser than likeness to his Lord. His pursuit is nothing lesser than likeness to his Lord. Nothing lesser. We know that we can make reference here to a multitude of New Testament passages that tell us that we're going to be glorified. The Bible talks about awaking one day with His likeness. Uh, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And that's a wonderful day. But we do not have to wait for that day to begin the pursuit of likeness to the Lord. 
we can begin this pursuit today. I believe that the greatest calling in the life of the Christian is a calling to be like him. He puts it this way in verse Peter. Be ye holy, for I am holy. What is he saying? Be like me. Strive to be like me. Make that your pursuit. He says, forgive as I have forgiven you. Show mercy as I have shown mercy. The calling of the Christian is to be like him. And that ought to be our life pursuit. And he says, look, uh, God is my judge and he's my savior. And I look around me, all the men of the world and what they do. And I see that uh, they, they are proud. They are consumed with the earthly appetites. And I find that everything in their life is permissible. But yet there's something that is much better than all of that. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I made this my life verse for this reason. Because I will never arrive at that until I see the Lord. So it's a life verse for me. And again and again in our lives when we fail to make that our pursuit it's most likely that we begin to become distracted by the thing by men of the world we look over there and see where their satisfaction is found uh, there is by the way a level of satisfaction in this world but we know according to the, the word of God it, it's a temporary in nature Moses, Hebrews 11, chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's what it is. That's what it is. It, it is for a season. There is satisfaction that is temporary. That's for a season in this world. That, that, that it does exist. But those who have a spiritual understanding understand that there is something much greater than that. Much greater than that. This is what sets us apart. That our pursuit is not things, it's the Lord Himself. The Lord Himself. So be willing to be different. Make a personal and conscious decision to have a clear vision of the Lord. By the way, I believe that's the only time when you can say after that, and I shall be satisfied. Because when you get a glimpse of the Lord then you will be satisfied. And then you're going to want more and more and more. And you're going to want it continually. The, the words here, I will behold thy face in righteousness, the intent there is that it's something that is going to be continually happening in my life. I will make a conscious decision to do that over and over and over and over again. And when I continue to do that over and over and over again, I know that when I do that, I shall be satisfied. And then when I do it again, I shall be satisfied again. And when I do it again, I shall be satisfied. In other words, nobody arrives in their lives at a moment where I'm satisfied Now I will never have any problem with being satisfied again. That's not the way it works. Because the moment we can be satisfied with the Lord, but the next moment... Our mind goes somewhere else and we look to be satisfied somewhere else. And it's not about trying to adjust our satisfaction meter. It's about going back to the face of the Lord. And to see who He is. Why? Because the standard is never arrived at in this world. The standard is the likeness 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on, I think all of us could say, if I'd ask for a raise of hand, from the moment you got saved and where you are now, I think everybody could say, here are some areas where God has given me victory. Here are some areas where I see myself becoming more like the Lord. And I'm not saying across the board, but in some areas, certainly we've seen that. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Well, there's more work to do. He that hath begun a good work in you, the Bible says, will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. We are predestinated to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is God's will for our lives. So go back to the illustration. I'm done. Remember those two mules? They each had their own pasture, green grass in each one of their pasture. But each mule went to the other pasture, even though they had everything they needed where they were. And they began to eat the grass in the other pasture, and they dwelt there, and they dwelt there, and then they got stuck in the fence. And that's where often we can get. We can get stuck in the fence, because we think that's where I'll have satisfaction. While in Christ, we have everything we need right here. But often as Christians, we go over the fence and try to eat on the other grass because we think it's greener on the other side. And then when we realize it's not greener, we're stuck there. And it's an un, very unpleasant place to be in. So, may the Lord help us. I shall be satisfied.